welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. It took years of on-and-off negotiations before T-Mobile and Sprint agreed to merge in a $26.5 billion deal at the end of last month. Now they have to wait for regulators to approve the deal, something that many analysts say will never happen. John Ledger, CEO of T-Mobile, has been promoting the deal. He explained why he thinks the deal will go through on Bloomberg. It's not four to three. Come on. There's seven or eight key wireless players now. Charter's coming in anytime soon. Secondly, more important, here's my headline. It's zero to one. There's nobody doing 5G. We're going to be the first. That's what the country should think about. Joining me is Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst Jennifer Ree. So, Jen, mega deals worth $10 billion or more are more than twice as likely to fail as mid-sized deals between $1 billion and $10 billion, according to Bloomberg Law's M&A market update. And this deal faces scrutiny from several government agencies. Mm-hmm. Which should be the hardest hurdle? I think in this case, uh, it's probably the the Department of Justice. I think ordinarily when a deal's in front of both the Department of Justice and the Federal Communications Commission, you would say the Federal Communications Commission. But in this case, you have a situation where their standard when they look at this is a little bit looser, a little more subjective than the Department of Justice's standard. And I think that if they want to win this deal, T-Mobile and Sprint are going to have to do it on this 5G issue, this innovation issue. And the FCC can look at that and say, is it in the public interest? you know, in this 5G world and for innovation in the future for these companies to come together and say, yes, it is. The Department of Justice has much more rigid standards by which they can credit that kind of innovation, sort of weigh it against the possible anti-competitive effects of reducing from four to three. So the companies seem to be well aware of the specific hurdles, no matter what Ledger is preaching to the masses, because they have built contingencies into the agreement and they cover divestitures, national security conditions, and regulatory review. What stands out to you there? You know, what stands out to me the most, I think there are two things. One is the lack of an antitrust breakup fee. I I found that to be really unbelievable because for any big deal that has a lot of uncertainty, and I think everybody would agree, including the companies, that this does, there is usually a breakup fee that's meant to protect the seller. After a year of investigation, their business can suffer and and that fee can help make them whole. So that was surprising to me. And also a little surprising was this recognition. I mean, not surprising, but interesting, I think, was the recognition of the change in CFIUS. Because both of these companies, remember Deutsche Telekom and SoftBank that own the companies, already years ago got CFIUS clearance to acquire American wireless companies. CFIUS, of course, yes. being the the commission that investigates deals having to do with foreign countries and uh, has been right. rather very busy lately, shall we yes. say. So there is a lot of interesting deal activity to keep you busy, Jen. <laughs> Disney's working through its deal to buy some of Fox's stellar entertainment assets. And now Comcast is getting into that picture again. Explain what's Possibly. happening. Right. There are reports that Comcast might get into it. And I think what happened here is that this is all very contingent on what will happen in the judge's ruling on the on the Justice Department's lawsuit trying to block AT and Time Time Warner's merger. We expect that decision June twelfth. And what happened there was that the Department of Justice sued to block that deal. It is a vertical deal, not a horizontal deal, not a deal between competitors, because they were concerned about what owning that content would allow AT&T as a distributor to do to other rival distributors. When that happened, 
Comcast originally was interested, you know, about a year ago or sometime in the last year, Comcast was interested in these Fox assets, but they would have had the exact same issue that AT&T had in acquiring Time Warner. And so I think Fox was concerned about that. And they saw Disney as the better buyer from an antitrust risk perspective. But now there's a lot of speculation that AT&T and Time Warner might actually win that trial. And if they do, what has been reported is that Comcast is going to jump back in because now their antitrust risk is likely lowered. And explain that deal, what that deal encompasses, the the deal with the Fox and mm-hmm. ABC. Well, Fox is selling only some of its assets. So it's selling regional sports networks, but not its national sports networks. It's a movie studio and then its stake in Hulu. And it does own 39% of Sky, which is a a UK company, and that stake will go too. Um, Other assets it's keeping itself, other networks and, and television stations. Uh, so the overlap for Disney, you know, it's a horizontal overlap. It's two competitors. They both have movie studios. Disney, of course, has uh, ESPN. And so there may be some overlap there in the sports programming and the sports content. And then Disney would up its stake in Hulu because it already has some stake in Hulu. So, And it would be the same with Comcast. You would also have some horizontal overlap with Comcast, which also has programming. So these will change the entertainment landscape. And as you mentioned, speculation is high on the side that the judge will actually allow that deal to go through. Is Are, are people being too confident about that? You know, I saw quite a bit of the trial and what a lot of what I didn't see, I, I read the transcripts of those days. And You're a you brave know, woman. <laughs> it was really interesting. And in the antitrust world, it's very exciting because we haven't had a trial like this in a long time. Yeah. Uh, vertical deals usually are able to get cleared or get cleared with some conditions on, on conduct going forward. And I would be very surprised if the judge ruled for the Department of Justice in this case. You know, they have a burden of showing that the deal has a likely of substantial harm to competition post-merger. And it just, I think they had a difficult time proving that. Um, They didn't have a lot of strong evidence and the economic model wasn't strong and I think was very attenuated. Um, And it's a lot to rest blocking a deal on the kind of evidence that they provided at trial. So I I think most people who observed it are along, I think that way too. So let's say that the judge does allow the deal to go through. What kind of effect will that have on the marketplace, on the landscape of the entertainment industry, and also on the way the Justice Department decides whether to oppose new mergers? Well, certainly, it, it, some of that depends on what the judge does and what that, what the opinion, how narrow or how broad it is, what the judge says about vertical deals. But certainly, it, it removes some of the risk for other vertical deals. So if there are deals that we don't know about in the making right now that had concerns because they were vertical rather than horizontal deals and thought that that might be a problem, they might feel free to move forward. And certainly, as we see, you've got Comcast already talking about jumping back in. I, I think it'll be a little bit more deal activity, particularly in media, as a lot of these companies try to compete with Netflix and Amazon Prime and and some of these other over-the-top, they're called, options. And so the Justice Department in about a minute, this is a big question for a minute, (laughs) the Justice Department will just have to give in or you think it still might oppose some of these deals and try to work on it? Oh, they still can oppose. You know, the deal, they look at it one by one. Each one is unique for the facts that apply to those companies. So I I don't think that they'll give in. And I actually also think in AT&T's case, if they lose, they'll appeal. 
that was going to be my next question, but we have about uh, half, a, a half a minute left. Thanks so much, Jen. Always a pleasure to have you. And that's Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst Jennifer Ree. And you can read more of her analysis by going to BIGO on the Bloomberg Terminal. RBS says it's paying $4.9 billion to resolve the Justice Department's investigation into its sale of toxic mortgage-backed securities a decade ago. That number is good news for banks like HSBC, UBS, and Wells Fargo because the RBS penalty will be about half what many analysts had expected the bank to pay. Joining me is Robert Hockett, a professor at Cornell Law School. Bob, the MBS portfolio of RBS was larger than that of most banks. Does this settlement surprise you? It does, in a way, June. Um, in, in, in another way, it probably shouldn't. Uh, the sense in which it does is that, of course, it's much, much lower, uh, sort of on a per uh, per unit basis, you might say, than were the fines that were levied against most of the big banks that uh, were successfully prosecuted or investigated uh, during the Obama administration. And so in that sense, it looks like those who are sort of prosecuted later are getting a bit of a windfall, right? Uh, and that is, in a sense, surprising, right? The sense in which it's not surprising is that there has been, of course, disturbing, there have been disturbing developments, you might say, over the last year or so, um, that basically indicate that when Mr. Trump was sort of running as a so-called populist who was, uh, you know, kind of pro-Main Street or pro-industry, but maybe down on Wall Street, um, that those... how should I call them? I mean, were they promises? I mean, that those assertions or assurances were basically, you know, meaningless. So let, let's let's talk about the and compare it to the Obama administration by explaining what happened to Barclays at the end of the Obama administration and then at the beginning of the Trump administration. Yeah. So, of course, there was an announcement, um, you know, at the, toward the end of the Obama years, right, that a particular settlement uh, amount, I'm sure that a particular uh, well, that the, the administration might be seeking a rather large penalty, right? Barclay announces defiantly, Barclays, I should say, announces defiantly that it will not pay more than a certain amount, uh, two billion, I believe it was. Um, and so the Obama administration goes ahead and uh, prosecutes uh, anyway. Uh, and then, of course, here we are at the beginning of the Trump uh, administration. And when we reach the end of the case, um, Barclays ends up paying no more than the two billion that they said that they would be willing to pay. So now. As a policy shift, in a speech on Wednesday, Deputy AG Rod Rosenstein talked about companies overpaying for their crimes because of piling on by multiple government agencies. Mm-hmm. What was mm-hmm. the new policy he announced? Well, he essentially announced that he wants the uh, various regulatory agencies to sort of work together to arrive at sort of a common amount when it comes to how much is going to be fined. Uh, but there's sort of two different ways to read that, right? On the one hand, the, you know, saying that, referring to this as sort of piling on, and also saying that, you know, in consequence of this so-called piling on, these firms might be paying too much. That's one way of reading things, and if that's the read, if that's the proper read, then it's absurd, right? On the other hand, if the idea is that, well, there ought to be coordination between distinct regulators who are regulating and assessing fines, then I think nobody would contest that, right? I think everybody would be fine with that. The reason that the first read looks like the more likely one is precisely because, he seems to be using a lot of language, like the piling on language and the paying too much language, to suggest that that's what actually bothers him. And the thing that's preposterous about that, of course, is, as anybody will tell you, if you look at the amount of damage or the amount of harm done, the sort of dollar value of the harm done in the lead-up to the crash, the fines that have ultimately been levied, 
even uh, the highest fines during the Obama administration have been uh, administration have been laughed at as having been paltry in comparison to the gains that were to be, that, that were made uh, through the wrongdoing. Right. So, in other words, even the the so-called heavy or large Obama fines are just looked at as sort of business expenses by the banks in question. And for that very reason, many people are saying you really have to go after individuals and jail them. The fining isn't working. So, for Rosenstein to come out and say, "Well, these fines are too high. There's too much piling on," that's just crazy. So, Bob, though, if these fines aren't working, and that seems to be the indication Mm -hmm. from the behavior we've seen, is there something to be said for a less punitive approach to enforcement and spending less money on it? I think that the answer is that fines aren't working, right? That's not a sign that we're sort of doing too much or that fining just doesn't work at all or the prosecution doesn't work. It does suggest that we're finding maybe to some extent the wrong entities or we're not finding enough entities. Um, and again, most people who have been watching this carefully are saying that, look, we ought to go after the individuals themselves who make the actual decisions. And that would mean fining individuals, not firms, or individuals in addition to firms. And it would mean even possibly prohibiting people from the industry or uh, even jail time if people's crimes are severe enough. Bob, so is it time for the banks to breathe a sigh of relief? Well, uh, it's looking that way. I mean, it, it is definitely looking as though the Trump administration is not going to be serious about law enforcement uh, against large financial institutions. And the so the Wells Fargo fine was just um, an isolated incident? Yeah, I think in, in a way, that was essentially a way for, well, it's, at least it's looking this way to me now. The best interpretation I can put on it now is that this was a way for Mr. Mulvaney to say, you see, I'm not getting whacked in my sort of illegal occupation of the CFPB. I'm actually quite severe. I'm very hard on the banks. But it was just, it was sort of a one-off deal. And of course, this all comes at the same time as announcement that uh, various other enforcement actions are being dropped. That they're not going to pursue um, uh, uh, exploitation or fraud by for-profit. Uh, education institutions like Trump University, that they're not going to bother going after payday lenders. I mean, that's, I think, what is more telling than a single isolated uh, fine that was imposed that was already in the works before he came along. Uh, and that now looks, again, just like a, a kind of window dressing uh, to give him at least one arrow in the quiver when he's trying to defend himself against claims that he's not actually taking uh, the role of the CFPB seriously. Thank you, Bob. That's Robert Hockett. He's a professor at Cornell Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.